Welcome back, everyone. Um, this has been a long time coming, and uh, as you can see, I'm, I'm really happy about this one. We've uh, got someone who's um, probably one of the most popular <laughs> popular accounts on on Twitter at the minute, <laughs> for the right reasons, though. Yeah, for the right reasons, I must add. So we've got Andrew Saunders from Arbitrum here, and also he seems to be passively an honorary NFT member of every single NFT project there is going at the minute as well, which is always a good thing. So, Andrew, thanks thanks for taking your time out. I know you guys are absolutely hectic at the minute and uh, yeah. really appreciate you being here. So, thanks. No, my pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> no, more, than, more than welcome. More than welcome. Um, so, yeah, I, we always do this with guests. I quite, I quite like to hear... Uh, a crypto origin story but also kind of what you were doing in a past life before you kind of came into this weird and wonderful world of crypto and DeFi and all that funny fun stuff as well yeah for sure so i you know i have a little bit of a non-traditional background which you can probably tell um but i'll do a i'll do a quick little recap so um the journey started actually funny enough when i was in high school um i used to go into new york city all the time and i would go to you know concerts and, you know, eventually this guy came up to me and he goes, I, you know, I, I see you at every show. I don't know who you are. I don't know whose parents, you know, let, lets their kid out, um, you know, all the time. And he was like, I work for, you know, this hip hop record label, Tommy Way Records. And he's like, I want to bring hip hop to the suburbs. And this was like during the heyday of, I mean, you know, you look up the names and you'll, you'll recognize most of them. Um, but that was, you know, basically how my quote unquote, like marketing journey started is I, I was helping to bring hip hop to the suburbs. Um, and then I think after that, you know, kind of said to myself, I think I want to go into the music industry um, and, you know, ended up actually going to Vanderbilt down in Nashville, where I worked for um, Universal Records um, throughout college, uh, again, in, in marketing. Um, you know, at that point, Napster was, you know, kind of taking a toll in the industry. So I said to myself, mm -hmm. all right, probably should pivot a little bit into something different. Um, ended up working um, in the motion picture industry for a little bit, um, doing kind of marketing. And I think, you know, at that point, was really kind of bitten by, let's call it the Hollywood bug and was excited. And this was obviously like pre-entourage. And I remember, um, you know, at college, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I read this book uh, called The Mailroom, which, you know, again, pre-entourage. And I said to myself, you know, oh my gosh, this is what I'm born to do, um, which at the time was, you know, be an agent. And so, you know, moved to LA, uh, knew no one, you know, made minimum wage until I was, you know, 27 years old. Um, but at CAA, you know, I actually, funny enough, started my career in the foundation. So I was building charities um, and making kind of philanthropic partnerships for, for major celebrity clients. Um, and then at that point, you know, I was going to be a, a talent agent, which was the original plan, took a step back and said, hmm, maybe I'll go into marketing instead. And so, you know, at that point in time, we were representing major companies like Coca-Cola, um, you know, General Motors, Delta Airlines, um, and really kind of serving as a bridge for them into Hollywood, right? Because a lot of them realized, you know, I want to leverage um, this this world. I want to leverage the um, the impact of this talent, but it's such a different business. You know, no one lives on LinkedIn. You know, it's relationship-based. You know, business models are being invented every day. Um, you know, and so we were really kind of the ones doing that. And, and my early client was, uh, was Cisco Systems uh, Technology. So I've been in the, the tech side. I guess for, for quite a, quite a long time, um, you know, took a step back. And I think at that place, um, it is such a PL based business, you know, even though you, your strategy, you might be, you know, blurring the lines with sales. Um, so I actually went to the, uh, the, the founders with one of my partners and said, we want to start our own division. And so at that point we said, you know, rather than representing brands for retainers into entertainment, you know, operating like kind of Bain McKinsey consultants, 
um, you know, we want to go the opposite route. And so we basically started representing, you know, pretty much all of the agency's clients. And so, you know, core clients at the time for us were everyone from, you know, Justin Bieber to Will Smith to Will I Am. You know, the list goes kind of on and on. Uh, Tom Hanks, J.J. Abrams. Um, you know, and at that point in time, it was, you know, how do we take these clients into the world of brands in, a, in an intelligent way? Um, and so it was really interesting. We almost became what I would call kind of talent managers or client strategists. And, you know, it was um, it was really kind of an interesting time. Um, then we kind of took a step back and said, all right, we've got all these incredible ideas, but at the end of the day, they're contingent on, you know, brand funding, marketing cycles, you know, all these things that are very tricky. We said, well, what if we had the money to do this ourselves? And so we actually merged um, with the M&A team. And at that point it was, you know, let's come up with the ideas tied to, you know, the 1% of our clients. And then let's go up to Silicon Valley and talk to the Graycrofts and, uh, and Sequoias of the world to, to fund this mm -hmm. stuff. And so we basically became a little bit of an in-house incubator um, of which a number of those companies that I, I worked on is actually uh, sold and exited at this point. Um, and I think, you know, at that time, again, we were really serving as this bridge between kind of entertainment and, and marketing and brand. Um, and this was also when kind of social first started um, taking off. And so we started to actually build relationships. And so I remember working with, you know, Facebook um, when there were two people in marketing or one person in marketing, which at the time I think was Mark's sister, who, who's become a good friend over the years. Um, but at that point, you know, rather than just being kind of a one one way bridge, um, it was really turning into this triangle. And so kind of sitting at this, this epicenter, I guess, of, you know, marketing, media, entertainment, technology, you know, and I think, you know, part of that was, you know, crossing over between these industries, you start to see really interesting business models and you start to say to yourself, well, why can't I take, you know, a film financing model and apply it to marketing? Or why can't I take, you know, a social media model and apply it to, um, to media? Um, and that was kind of exactly what we were doing was like inventing new marketing models. Um, so, you know, I, I know for a fact, I was one of the first to ever put brands into Netflix original programming, um, which was, uh, which was bloodline back in the day. Um, Is that more like a product product placement type stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. in the early days, a lot of folks were like, you know, all the viewership's going to Netflix, but you know, there's no advertising on Netflix and Netflix doesn't want to do, you know, integrations on, on their shows. Um, but I was representing a lot of the creators of those shows. And so, mm. you know, again, if I could work with them to figure out ways to bring, you know, Anheuser-Busch and Budweiser or Patron into those shows that didn't take away from the creative or didn't take away from the show, um, that's super impactful, right? You're marketing in a way that no other brand is, is able to, at least at that point in time. Now there's, you know, tons of brands doing this stuff. Um, you know, another example would be influencer marketing. At the time, influencers didn't exist. Influencer marketing wasn't <laughs> a thing. Um, and funny enough, eventually my team did represent and a lot of the big early influencers. Um, but I remember literally looking at, you know, Justin Bieber's Twitter and, and saying, you know, how many followers does he have? You know, what percentage of these followers are real? You know, what is the premium CPM rate that I'm going to apply to that? Um, and then I was doing, you know, uh, syndicated influencer social programs in the seven figure range. You know, when I think back then, a lot of a lot of big celebrities were, you know, getting paid $25,000 here, $25,000 there. And so, um, you know, again, just a great example of like taking models from one area, bringing them into another. Um, and then again, just having, I think the, uh, you know, the brain power and experience to kind of uh, wrap that up in a way that's methodical and intelligent. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, was there for a good 
I think nine and a half years, um, was the youngest agent at the time ever at the company, which was <laughs> kind of fun. Um, and, you know, at that point in time, I think, you know, we were the industry leaders. I was ready for a change. I think most of us on the team thought we would just go and run our clients' companies, which candidly is kind of what happened. So my old uh, <laughs> partner is um, the head of Will Smith's, you know, holding company. Um, our other partner is the president of, you know, JJM's Brad Robot. And so, um, wow. you know, but for me, I think it was a question of, do I want to, want to stay in Hollywood or do I want to go more, you know, client side or media side? And so um, long story short had been effectively building companies for Google, you know, new media companies for Google with Google dollars. Um, and in the process of doing that, you know, taught myself media buying and planning um, and basically built a pretty significant media business inside CAA. And so, um, you know, I looked at it as I have the big celebrity talent. I have the greatest producers and storytellers in Hollywood. I now have the reach and scale. Um, I can compete with the traditional media companies. And, and the funny story is, um, you know, it was Reebok at the time was in conversations with um, NBC Universal, where I ended up actually working after. Um, and I was able to basically stitch together a much more significant non-traditional marketing program. And effectively, that entire budget moved to my clients instead of NBC Universal. And so we had, you know, Ryan Seacrest, we had Sofia Vergara, we had, you know, folks talking about um, Reebok on the red carpet. Um, and I think that was kind of that turning point where, <laughs> you know, um, NBC Universal and other media companies are like, what is going on here. And so <laughs> I literally, um, funny, funny story. I'm literally in Australia at the time on business. Um, and I get an email from uh, senior recruiting at leadership at NBC Universal. And he goes, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know how you do it. Uh, I looked at your LinkedIn. I, I have no idea who you are. He's like, but stop. And, um, and come do it here instead, you know, before one of our competitors gets it. And that literally, that's how I ended up at NBC Universal. And so, you know, went through the, you know, eight hour interview process and all that. Um, and then long story short was really brought in there. You know, I don't know if you, you remember these days, but, you know, there was a point in time where every media company was trying to build their own in-house creative agency. The whole idea was, you know, you don't need a creative agency. You can just do it with us. And um, you, you saw this pretty much across the board. Um, when I got to NBC Universal, you know, it was a little bit um, bigger picture than that. They basically said, you know, we've got brands doing $20 million deals here and $10 million deals there. Mm -hmm. You know, we want you to be the $150 million man. And I was like, I like the sound of that. <laughs> Yeah, I'll take um, that. Don't mind that. Yeah, exactly. And so, <laughs> and so, really, what that meant was like, can you stitch together all of our networks, all of our talent, all of our platforms, all of our capabilities, um, and convince advertisers that it's worth you know coming in at a at a nine figure level, right? Um, and you know, basically, it was like, I'll try. Um, mm. And then, fast forward, you know, about eighteen months later, we had a team of about sixty people, and we were doing over a billion dollars a year um, in revenue, wow. and it was actually more profitable than um, than two of our cable networks. Yeah. Combined, and so, <laughs> um, and so we did it. Um, and I think you know, for me, like I, I was uh, thrilled to like see the model prove itself. And you know, anyone that's familiar with traditional marketing, at least in the U.S., I mean, you're looking at you know an average thirty second spot is probably three hundred thousand dollars. And then Jeez. if you want to be aggressive from a media standpoint, you know, maybe you're putting in another three million in media. So you know, your typical campaign might be somewhere around you know three point three million. Um, you know, not taking into account things like Super Bowl. So it gives you a little bit of perspective when you're doing deals at the hundred and fifty million dollar range, what that means, and you know most of 
the campaigns that I was working on, you know, based on the data that we had 97, 98, 99% of the US population saw it at least once, if not more than once. Um, and then, you know, we were actually uh, the, the first partner that I did it with was Microsoft. And candidly, I can't share, you know, metrics, but it was so <laughs> successful that they said, why don't, why don't you guys just build a content agency for us? Because it outperformed our, <laughs> our traditional marketing, which was kind of crazy. Um, and so, you know, at that point in time, I mean, really the only ones that could afford this was, um, you know, big tech. So like Amazon, mm -hmm. funny enough, the team that ended up hiring me was the team that we worked with at NBCU back in the day, um, which I'll, I'll connect the dots there. Um, you know, big auto, right? Huge auto launches, the motion picture industry, because you've got, you know, a week or two to basically drive as much um, ticket sales as possible before, you know, the kiss of death from uh, Rotten mm -hmm. Tomatoes. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, it was big, big, big companies um, and really enjoyed it. I mean, I think I really enjoyed creating holistic 360 campaigns, you know, that lived across every platform. I mean, we were doing things that no one had ever done before. I mean, we did, um, you know, a live commercial on air, which, which no one had done in the history of the company. We did the first, oh. um, SNL web series in history, which, um, the way we pulled that off was, um, I represented along with others at CAA, um, Broadway video, the creators of SNL. Right. And so when I came in, um, you know, was able to explain to them the benefit of, you know, audience development and younger generations and things like that. And so, um, they looked at it as a, as a marketing opportunity more than, um, you know, the parent company trying to force something down them. So, um, really successful there. And I think like my, my takeaway from that was, um, you know, folks were a little bit shocked, I think by how quickly this, this scaled and how successful it was. And, you know, I basically said to them, I said, you know, the, the, the reason that this was so successful was, you know, when I got here, every single company was operating on a different PL. And you know what that means? It means everyone's competing with one another, right? And mm. so what I would do is go to, you know, CMOs and heads of marketing and all of our networks, because I'm sitting at this, you know, parent company level and say, listen, I'm not here to steal your job. You know, if anything, yeah. I'm here to, to take your ideas and amplify them. And by the way, like great ideas can come from anywhere. And I, I really believe that. And so um, I think just not having an ego and not being territorial, I think very quickly, a lot of folks realized I, I wasn't a threat. Um, yeah. And I even said to them, I said, listen, you know, there's a good chance this company starts to consolidate over time, like most media companies, like, why don't we think about your future on my team, right? You know, if and mm. when that team dissolves. And so um, I think just that level of just, um, you know, empathy and kindness and, and maybe just like emotional intelligence is, is candidly like the real reason it, it took off in my opinion. Um, because up until the point I joined, I mean, it, these networks just were not willing, willing to work together, you know, cause everyone was mm. like, I want my 20, I want my 25 million, et cetera. Um, you know, was under a three-year contract, which, you know, pretty rare in crypto, but at least in Hollywood, um, pretty common that you're under, you know, pretty lengthy contracts and agreements. Yeah. Um, and so literally the day my three-year contract ended, um, I resigned. Um, and the background <laughs> there was, um, you know, I, I kind of knew at the, that point in time, I didn't want to work at a, at a large company. Um, it was the right opportunity for me because I had the ability to work with every brand under the sun with some of the largest budgets in, in marketing history. And so yeah. it was one of those things where it's like, how do you turn that down? Um, but I'm definitely much more of a, you know, smaller company startup guy. Um, and so, you know, going back to my CAA days when I was building and incubating these Google backed media companies, um, a lot of them had asked me, you know, why don't you come in as a co-founder, you know, CMO, chief evangelist, you know, COO, CRO. Um, it just wasn't ready at the time. I think, you know, CAA, while an enormous name in Hollywood, you know, not everybody knows that industry and, and that company. And so I looked at NBCU as just a way to kind of validate my, my experience and kind of prove the, the skill set. Um, 
and so funny enough, Tastemeet had actually been one of these Google companies, um, and they were backed uh, at that point in time also by like Liberty Media, um, Discovery Communications, which is you know Food Network, HGTV, uh, Travel Channel, etc. And uh, funny enough, when I was at uh, at NBC Universal, Comcast invested in them, right? Which was our parent company, and so oh. you know, NBCU was able to position it as you know Andrew's jumping ship to one of our investments. He's going to help accelerate it. Um, and for me, it was an opportunity to get back more into kind of the world that I enjoy, um, where I can have a much bigger impact, you know. And so, um, literally, same thing there. You know, joined. I think I had a team of about three folks in marketing. Um, fast forward about 18, 24 months later. I think I had a team of about 40 um, across you know, <laughs> six countries. And so it was, uh, I want to say it was about a third of the company at that time, but we had, you know, I had teams all over the, the US, um, mm -hmm. London in Shoreditch, funny enough, um, Paris, uh, Sao Paulo, Tokyo, you know, you name it. And so really interesting because again, you know, we were building a next generation media company. Um, you know, think if you were going to create food network, travel channel, HGTV, but for, you know, millennials, you know, where would you create it? How would you create it? So the obvious answer is social. Um, and so that was really exciting because I got to work with, you know, all the platforms directly, right. You know, so I'm working with Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter, um, you know, on the product side and the platform side. And so, you know, getting to beta test things or experiment with things that weren't public yet. So that was really interesting and exciting. Um, and I think, you know, part of that was what started happening was I was building ad products. So, um, for example, Instagram would come to us and say, Hey, we're working on this new product called stories. And then I'm sitting here going, well, why can't we turn stories into, into shows? And why can't we run ads in the middle of stories? And by the way, why can't we turn highlights into episodes? And so, you know, we would do this and then candidly, we would sell it to advertisers and it would perform. And then a lot of times the platform companies would call me and say, Hey, like, <laughs> you know, that thing you did, you know, we think that could be, an <laughs> yeah, you know that thing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, go for it. Like, I, you know, I'm not territorial. Like if you think it's a good idea, take it and run with it. So, um, you know, so at that point I was running, you know, an in-house marketing agency, you know, yet again, um, but also building ad products. And, um, it was, it was also interesting too, cause I think having those years of both remote, you know, management experience and also the international experience, you really start to understand the nuances, um, from a regional perspective and how to approach global marketing and international marketing. I think a lot of Americans don't get it. I think what they try to do is, you know, let's do this thing here in the U S where we're putting all this budget into it. And then, you know what we'll do? We'll translate it for 25 other countries. And, um, <laughs> it just doesn't work. I mean, like the example I can give in the U S is, you know, I've, I've lived all over the country you know, I've lived in New York, Nashville, Los Angeles, completely different populations, completely different mindsets. Mm. Um, you know, and, and it's not, you know, it's not just those three. I mean, it's state by state. Um, and when you go to, you know, other countries, I mean, take Europe, it's like, you can't just do a one size fits yeah. all for all of Europe. Um, or even in Latin America, like one of the things I always find so interesting is a lot of, you know, US marketers just think, oh, Spanish language, but they don't understand the like dialect differences between countries, um, you know, or even that Portuguese is in Spanish, you know? And so um, <laughs> I think that was, yeah, that was a really great opportunity just to learn more about, you know, all the different regions and cultures and, you know, uh, consumer behavior patterns, because they're, they're so different, right? Um, yeah. And then I think, you know, what started happening was I was just doing a lot of really non-traditional kind of first of its kind marketing. You know, I did a, a television show with um, Zoe Deschanel and the Points Guy for Capital One. Wow. Um, you know, I was building new ad products that were leveraging Amazon um, destination sites for you know, auto brands. Um, and uh, it was really interesting. So long story short, Amazon ends up investing in us. Um, and then literally two weeks later, I get this phone call and they're like, 
we know this isn't typically how things go, um, but how would you <laughs> feel if we pulled you out of, out of a Tastemade and brought you into corporate headquarters? And at the time I was like, yeah, no, I don't think I want to go back to a, no. to a big company. <laughs> Um, so I, you know, politely pass and they're like, listen, come up to, you know, come up to headquarters, meet the team. And, you know, obviously you never say no to a, to a interview. Um, so I went up there, uh, met the team candidly, really liked the team. It was a lot more diverse, a lot more fun, you know, than I expected it to be. Um, and, uh, long story short, they were like, we, you know, want to build a new marketing practice. We've been trying to find someone to build it for over two years. Uh, we didn't think this person existed. We think you're that unicorn. <laughs> um, so let's do it. And, um, you know, I literally looked at kind of the, not the business plan, but I guess the model and was like, this is all wrong. This isn't going to be successful. Yeah. And um, they basically said to me like, well, why don't you come back to us with what you, with what you think is right? Um, and I did. And, and candidly, they were like, check, 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 check. And for me, that was an indicator that like, this could be a good opportunity, right? Because yeah. They were invested in me um, even before I started. They were willing to listen, which I think is is huge. Um, and that you know that was the beginning of Amazon. And so, quick quick background there is if if you're not you know, uh, a former employee, I think a lot of people think of Amazon as a data company or a retail company. I like to think of Amazon as a startup factory. And so um, when I was there, you know, you can think of Amazon Studios as a startup, Alexa as a startup, Whole Foods as a startup, Health mm -hmm. as a startup. Um, and so in the early days, you know, very similar to, um, to you know, investing in, in uh, venture companies, you know, a lot of times what you see is in the early days, a lot of brand marketing. It's like, let's create as much awareness as possible. You know, we just, it's a land grab, right? And then at a certain point in time, at the top of that curve, you're like, okay, great. We now own all the real estate. Now we've got to, you know, make this thing profitable. We've got to figure out the business model. We've got to turn on the, the revenue streams, right? And then a lot of times what you'll see is companies, especially in the DTC space, quickly shift from like 100% brand marketing to 100% performance marketing, which in crypto, I think we all like to call it growth. Um, and I think the problem with that is you need a hybrid, right? It's like, you need to always be building your brand, maintaining your brand, protecting your brand. But at the same time, you also want to be thinking about, you know, are there metrics that I can point to and look to, to prove that things are working or prove that things are growing or prove that things are shifting. Um, and so I think what happens at Amazon, like a lot of other startup companies is, you know, a lot of these companies hit that bell curve and they're, they stop doing brand marketing. Right. And mm -hmm. so I want to say about seven, seven or eight years ago, um, Jeff B basically created the division that I sat on, which was called XCM. And so we actually sat above all these startups. And so we owned, um, the really, really big picture stuff. So we owned like new Amazon customer acquisition, um, wow. Amazon customer retention for the life cycle of the customer. Um, we owned Prime, the membership program, um, Alexa, um, Super Bowl, um, you know, Climate Pledge. I mean, you know, I would say like anything that is a major, 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 you know, global company priority would typically fall, you know, within our team. And when I joined there, oh, that's Alexa talking. When I joined there, um, <laughs> most of what they were doing was traditional, you know, it was like traditional TV ads and, you know, things like that. And um, for me, it was, you know, how do we become a part of popular culture and entertainment, which really means yeah. like, being a part of it versus, you know, surrounding it. Um, and so I was overseeing, you know, our integrated marketing across TV, film, music, celebrity. Um, you know, I was doing things uh, with the podcast space where we were trying to, you know, effectively prove measurement models and performance models. And a lot of these things that I did for three years, which, which is a pretty lengthy stay for most at Amazon, um, <laughs> you know, we cracked the code because we would have, you know, millions of dollars and we would have, you know, data scientists in India. And so, you know, by the time I left, there were a lot of things that even today, 
you know, marketers still scratch their heads on and go, I don't know if this is worth the spend. And that's the nice thing for me is like, I know what is worth the spend. I can't crank the numbers anymore, but at least I know if I'm going to do this, here's how to do it. And here's what not to do. Um, and so, yeah. And so that was kind of my experience. And so, you know, I basically built my own kind of, you know, in-house um, practice. And then that very quickly scaled across, I want to say about seven countries and something like 12 yeah. different product lines. And so I was working with our autonomous vehicles unit. I was helping send Alexa to space with NASA. I mean, you, you name it, I was, I was probably touching it. Um, and it was exciting. I really enjoyed it. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, you know, true to kind of what I said before about NBC Universal, um, I'm definitely not a, a, a big traditional company guy. Um, I think my heart definitely belongs more in, in startups and, and building. You know, I always tell people I'm an entrepreneur and part of that is I like to build businesses inside of businesses. Um, I've now mm -hmm. done it. This will be my fifth time. So I've actually built wow. four different marketing practices from the ground up. Every single one scaled extremely quickly. Every single one's been successful. Um, and so now I'm on to, on to number five. Um, and I think like the quick background um, in terms of like what got me into here was uh, I'm an LP and a venture fund myself. I've been a you know venture investor for years. Um, interestingly enough, more in the kind of consumer products and retail space. Um, we actually invest in a lot of uh, underserved female founders, and and I, we have a pretty good track record. Like if I showed you the names of the brands, you'd say, oh, I know almost all of these. Um, so we've done <laughs> well for ourselves. But you know, as a result of that, you know, I know a lot of VCs, both traditional VCs and non-traditional ones, um, you know, around the country and the world. And so when I was leaving Amazon, I just went and talked to you know friends at Andreessen and, you know, KOTU and, you know, places like that and just said, you know, where are you guys investing? And, you know, pretty much everybody talked about the same four areas, one of which was, you know, Web3, crypto, blockchain. Um, it definitely felt like the best alignment for me just in terms of experience that I had, you know, working with companies like AWS and, and Amazon, Cisco, um, and then also just from a personal passion standpoint. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pump the brakes on that. But when, when we talk about kind of what brought me to Arbitrum, I'll give you the, uh, give you the background in terms of how I kind of figured out where I wanted to be. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Just one, one question from inside the middle of that. Yeah as, yeah. as someone who would be leading the market and how, because you definitely come across and I've definitely came across people in like my old workplace and things like that, where mm -hmm. marketing is something where it's not as tangible, not as empirical to kind of pitch across to the people who have got the budget. Yeah. How yeah. do you go about that? Because it seems with a lot of the stuff that you were doing, we're kind of pushing the boundaries, exploring new kind of ways to do it. How do you pitch that idea? Yeah. Because obviously we're <laughs> a small kind of startup in and of ourselves at a content platform. For me yeah. to kind of go and look for advertisers for this podcast, for example, even though we're re reasonably small at this point, it's how do you angle for them to you know take the leap, if that makes sense? <laughs> Yeah, no, no, it's a great question. I mean, um, there's kind of two things that I would say. One is it, it's not that dis dissimilar from being a startup, you know, a founder, right? It's like you're running around trying to convince very wealthy individuals, you know, in the seed phase, like believe in me, invest in me, right? So I think there's a couple of things I would say. One is you have to build this, this trust. And at Amazon, we used to call it earned trust, right? And so, okay. you know, for me, for example, it could be my track record. It could be the fact that I've built, you know, marketing organizations four times. All of them have been successful successful. All of them have been highly profitable. Um, and so if, you know, a lot of people have always said to me, I'm surprised you've never started your own agency. Like people would invest in that <laughs> in two seconds. Um, it's not interesting for me. It's not what I want to do, or at least today, it's not what I want to do. Right. So I think the track record is, is important. Um, the second is I think having, 
very legitimate folks um, vouch for you um, it is important, especially when you're new and especially when you're younger. Um, like I'll give you guys a little a little alpha. So one of the things I have with with my resume um, is I have a you know a one pager of references, right? And these are like very senior level executives from companies like, you know, Amazon and Netflix and Google and Facebook. Um, and so again, you know, when I meet with someone, you know, let's call it a job interview, um, you can read my resume and go, wow, this guy's achieved a lot. This guy's, you know, a, a performer. Um, but then you look at this page and you go and look at everybody that's vouching for him, right? It's yeah. like CMO of Verizon, right? Like, it's hard to question that person's, mm -hmm. you know, opinion of, of someone, um, or at least at kind of that level from an operational standpoint. And so I think that the earned trust thing is important. And then if you don't have that earned trust, how do you build trust quickly via folks that maybe have that trust or have a higher level of trust? Um, then I think, you know, one of the things that's really important, and we did this at Amazon, is, is really kind of write it out. You know, um, I think pitch decks are, are great. They're flashy. They're fun. But sometimes, honestly, a, a one-sheeter or a two-sheeter can much more intelligently get an idea across. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, especially when you're talking about things like product market fit, you know, uh, total addressable market, um, you know, that stuff is all tied to data. I mean, you're not pitching you know, a creative concept for a 30 second commercial, you know, you're pitching a business idea and the businesses typically require business plans, right? So how do you create a, a lightweight version of the business plan, I guess is, is part of it. And then I think the last thing is like, if you're able to draw comparison case studies, so, and it doesn't even matter if they're, they're programs or partnerships that you've done, but, you know, let's say for example, you want to go do not in crypto, um, an influencer marketing campaign, you know, if you can go point to four other examples where you say, you know, here's the campaign, here's the spend, and here's the back end performance of that, whether it's, you know, product sales, perception shifting, brand building, et cetera, you've got a track record of proving that. And, and I think like those would probably be my biggest tips. And then for me, you know, cause you are right. Like I am very much, um, one of those non-traditional outside the box <laughs> folks. Um, I think I've just built that brand for myself, right? There's not a ton yeah. of us out there. I have a, a very good friend who, um, is very similar minded. Like if you're familiar with liquid death, he's done a lot of the marketing for liquid death, which I would argue is probably part of why it's so successful. But, um, <laughs> but there's, there's a, a small group of us, I think globally within the marketing community that are, I would call it more like marketing inventors, you know, where we really kind of invent new models and do things differently. Um, and I think again, you know, that's the, that's the brand that I've been, you know, um, known as it's the brand that's been built around me. And so I think a lot of companies that will hire me are hiring me partially for that. Right. And so as a result, they want that, they want that non-traditional thinking. They want that inventor mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Love that. So let's, let's focus a little bit more on, uh, Arbitrum and a bit of crypto. So yeah. what, so what are your kind of favorite things one as a whole on, about the whole crypto space and then probably sure. more more closely what are the things that really stand out that kind of drew you into Arbitrum in and of itself yeah for sure for sure so um i think just starting about the crypto space which it's always so funny it's like some folks crypto some folks web3 you can tell you can tell how early they started doing their own research based on what <laughs> term they choose um but i think you know a couple things i would look at um like I am a very intellectually curious person, right? Um, you know, I, I think a lot of folks in this space get into this space for two reasons. Either they want to make a lot of money or candidly, they're <laughs> just very intellectually curious. I would, I would put myself more in the camp of the later. Um, you know, if I weren't um, a marketer, you know, I'd be, a, I'd be a professor probably. I, I actually guest lecture at um, 
all the LA universities um, for their marketing grad programs. And then funny enough, I'm also on the board of um, California Department of Education. Um, and so that gives you a sense of just kind of where my, where my brain is. Um, so I think the intellectual curiosity piece is, is probably the number one thing for me. I, you know, even having worked at places like Amazon, um, I'm blown away every single day by how smart and how curious everyone I meet is in this industry. Um, and it's not to say that everyone is and, and not that everything's legitimate, but like, you know, I'll, I'll have partner calls almost every single day. And it's, it's usually folks that are either already building on Arbitrum or they want to build on Arbitrum. And, um, you know, they reach out to the partnerships team and they're like, we want to talk to your CMO. And, you know, I always start with, you know, for folks that aren't anonymous, like, where are you from? <laughs> What's your background? And like, I'm just blown away. I mean, especially in the past six months, like I'm just seeing this huge wave of talent, you know, shifting. Um, a lot of folks coming from big tech, a lot of folks coming from academia, a lot of, you know, uh, multi-time, multi-exit founders. Um, but I think like that, the intellectual curiosity is, is definitely a big one for me. Um, the second thing is I would just say it, like inclusion. So one of the funny stories is like when I was at Amazon um, at, at corporate, um, I was helping to lead a lot of our you know diversity and inclusion um, efforts for our team. Um, and so I just in general, like, you know, I think about my own child who's two years old. I just I want his world to be the real world. I want it to be inclusive. I want it to. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I want him to be exposed to a lot of different things and a lot of different people. Um, and I think a lot of traditional businesses, unfortunately, just don't operate that way because we have, you know, institutional biases or we have unconscious biases that, you know, affect our decision making. Um, but I think, you know, part of the the anonymous um, component of crypto, I think definitely brings in a lot more inclusivity. Um, and even what I found at Arbitrum is like, just from a leadership perspective, like I've never seen leaders be so inclusive. Um, and it's, it's really, um, it's really exciting. It makes me go, you know, I hope the rest of web three is like this. Um, I hope the future of web three is like this. And I, I also really hope that like this can trickle back to web two or, or whatever, you know, web two becomes in the future. So I would say the inclusion piece is a big one for me. Um, and experimentation, I would say, is another big one. So, you know, one of the things I, I've learned over the years as, a, as an investor is like research and development is your best friend. You know, companies that invest a lot in R&D uh, that also have good cash flow. <laughs> those, are the ones you, those are the ones you invest in. And like you know, Warren Buffett, obviously, I think shares the same mindset as that. And he's, he's a lot more successful than I am. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things I saw at Amazon, again, this notion of startup factory was just how much money we were putting into R&D and, you know, how many different things we were developing and experimenting with. And um, when I first started interviewing at, at Arbitrum and now that I've been there for a while, like I've kind of been blown away by how much R&D is a part of the company. Um, you know, you have Ed Felton, who um, for anyone that's not familiar is, is arguably one of the most experienced people in the entire industry. Um, and he really leads kind of our research efforts. Uh, he's our chief science officer. Um, and, um, you know, his team is, is researching new technologies, trying to invent new technologies. And um, it's one of, honestly, the most exciting things, not just about Arbitrum, from to me, but like crypto in general, like I hope that other companies are really doing this and leaning into this because I mean, that's, that is the future. It's, it's things that mm -hmm. haven't been invented yet. Um, and then I think the last thing for me is, is new challenges. So, you know, again, if you've like looked at my website or, you know, my background, um, you know, a lot of what I've done from a marketing perspective, I've invented, right. Um, and was kind of early days. And so I always like, new challenges. I think a lot of companies want to hire me to do what I've done before because they're like, he either knows the secret sauce or, you know, he's been doing it longer than others. Um, I enjoy, 
trying to learn new things and trying to crack the code on different things. Because again, you know, intellectual curiosity. And so some of the things I've, I've looked at getting into this industry are, and I know this doesn't go for every company, but like we can't really do a lot from a paid media perspective. So we're not going to do, you know, promoted mm -hmm. posts on Twitter. We're not going to pay for influencers. Um, and so as a marketer, take a step back and go, wow, well, those were quote unquote tools in my toolbox. So now yeah. I need to go invent new tools. And, and so that's part of the fun, I think, is, is that, you know, another example I can give you is, um, you know, if you were to say that to me, oh, you can't buy media. What you're basically saying to me is you can't buy scale and you can't buy targeting. And so then I go, okay, so I need to go build my own scale um, at, you know, that can be targeted, which means building, you know, a targeted organic community. Um, and I think one of the easiest and fastest ways to do that is through, you know, first party data. But obviously this industry is all about data privacy and protection <laughs> to some extent, right? And so even just that thinking about, you know, if I'm going to build a first party data set, how do I do it in a way that's, you know, fully opt in um, and ethical, you know, how do I create um, an alternative for someone that maybe wants to remain anonymous? Um, and mm -hmm. so these again are just like, they're new challenges that I have to think about. And, and candidly, a lot of times I have to invent the solutions. And so I just, I find that very, uh, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting way to look at it, actually. Because, yeah. yeah, as you say, a lot of the tools aren't necessarily available to you from, from the traditional world. So, yeah, as I said, yeah. I look forward to you. Yeah. I look forward to you figuring that one out, actually. <laughs> you know, it's going, it's going pretty well. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure there's, there's some multiple reasons for this. But, like, as you can see, I'm pretty active on, uh, on crypto Twitter. But, like, <laughs> what you're probably seeing right now is, you know, my personality here, my personality there, a little bit different. But um, that is, like, marketing strategy. Um, and, it's, mm. and it's working. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes time um, and energy, but um, but yeah, luckily, I mean, I've I've done so many different things over the course of my career that a lot of what I'm doing is saying, can I pull this model from this industry or yeah. that industry and apply it here? So, um, so at least getting a head start, I guess. And then, um, and then going back to part two, I guess the the, the Arbitrum story, um, it was pretty simple, I think. You know, I started doing my own research probably the way anyone else does, which is listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, you know, reading white papers, reading, reading articles. Um, and I think, again, as someone that was a part of, you know, Web 1, Web 2, um, that's also worked at the intersection of so many different companies and industries, you know, I, I realize how early it is. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize how early it is. I mean, I go back to my days in, you know, AR and VR and social when they were first starting. And I remember how long it took you know, for mass adoption. I remember how long it took for things to properly scale. Um, and so I, I believe we're still early. Um, and so that being said, you know, taking a step back, you know, if I'm going to go into a company, um, you know, as a, as an equity holder, um, I want to make sure that it's, you know, hopefully going to, going to pay off in the long run, you know, because again, when you go to a startup, you're working so much and so hard, um, hopefully on something mm -hmm. you're passionate about. Um, and so I said to myself, okay, if it's early days, the two things that I probably could bet on right now are data and infrastructure, right? Um, I think normally you would see most folks like myself ending up in layer three working for dApps because, you know, these are much more consumer facing products and services and brands. But when we talk about, you know, the fortune 500 of today and the fortune 500 of tomorrow from a traditional business standpoint, I think it's the same thing in crypto candidly. And so I think there are companies that, that are around today that may be around tomorrow, that may be leaders tomorrow. Um, and there's, there's certain ones that I'm 
very bullish on. Um, but there's others that may not be around, right? Um, and so I think for me, it was, you know, that is the place that probably is the most stable right now, at least for the next, you know, five to 10 years. Um, and so I started, you know, interviewing at a lot of them. I mean, I, I won't name names, but, you know, I was interviewing to be the, the CMO of a, a number of competitors to Arbitrum, um, some data, you know, infrastructure companies as well. Um, and I think, you know, part of what I was doing was not just, you know, going after companies that I might want to work at, but really starting to try to understand like the competitive differentiation between them. And, you know, again, if I'm going to land at one of these companies, maybe I can also get some early intelligence on, you know, their focus <laughs> or strategy or kind of what got them to point A to point B. And so um, long story short, I started interviewing with, with all those companies, um, you know, full transparency, a lot of, got a lot of egos, um, which I was surprised mm -hmm. by. I, I guess I assumed most folks in this industry were going to be, you know, again, intellectually curious, um, probably coming more from you know academic backgrounds. But um, but yeah, I definitely got a fair amount of egos. And you know, when I asked the, uh, we used to call it diving deep at Amazon. When I asked the deeper questions, you know, we'd get some kind of surface levely answers. And so that mm. it didn't really feel great for me from a due diligence perspective. And and again, because I've been doing this for so long, like I'm not a developer, but I understand things enough that um, I can I can I can see through. The, the surface a little yeah. bit on, on certain things. Um, and so, you know, um, started interviewing with them, started asking most of these companies like, you know, hey, if I were to come in, like, where do we steal the good talent from? You know, where are the best developers? And Arbitrum kind of consistently came up over and over, um, not just for layer two <laughs> companies, but for others. And so I was like, ah, interesting. Like, that's a little bit of alpha for me there. Um, and so, you know, that was kind of the beginning of, of I guess, my interest in, in Arbitrum. And then, you know, I started doing a lot more research on the Arbitrum side. And, you know, again, you look at the founders, it's like, you know, Ed Felton, yeah. you know, was the head. <laughs> of, of it's ridiculous, space. isn't it? <laughs> you know, and, you know, Harry and Steven, you know, were his PhD students back in the day. And then you look at, you know, just, just Ed's career. I mean, you know, deputy CTO of the White House under Obama. It's like, <laughs> you have to be pretty legitimate and pretty experienced to be sitting in a role like that. Um, and then also when you think about this industry, like having someone that has those relationships that understands that side of things, um, insanely valuable, right? Because you want to be, you want to be safe, not just in terms of what you're doing with your developers and your consumers, but you also want to make sure that you're building a platform that has, you know, longevity and isn't going to run into, you know, issues or hiccups down the road, whether that's from a technical perspective or from a, you know, government perspective. So I think that was a, a good indicator for me. Um, then, you know, the, uh, a lot of times when I would ask folks in the industry that I knew, like, Hey, you know, what's the best source of factual information? Um, they would continuously bring up <laughs> the textbook. Um, what is it called? <laughs> Cryptocurrency Technologies by Ed Felton and Stephen Goldman, right? <laughs> so then I said to myself, okay, so these guys are clearly very legitimate, but they also wrote a college textbook. Like, that's a good sign, right? Um, yeah. In terms of just legitimacy. And then you know, f you know, long story short, I, I reached out to them uh, directly um, and they were just so nice. I mean, so humble, mm. um, so kind. Um, I, it just was such a different experience than than a lot of the other companies I interviewed with. I will say, though, I'll give a shout out to Chainlink. They were also pretty wonderful. I really <laughs> like those folks. And and actually, one of the things that's nice is they're one of our biggest partners at, at Arbitrum. So I yeah. actually get to work with them um, pretty closely. Um, but yeah, it was just it was such a different thing. And, and you know, I I think at the end of the day, you know, I walked away from that first meeting and I was like, these guys are truly doing this to help scale Ethereum. These guys are in this not to buy a bunch of Lambos. Um, you know, they're adults. Um, you know, I have children, they have children. It just, you know, it checked a lot of boxes. And, you know, I kept looking and I was like, 
all right, founders, check, 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 right? Then I started looking at who the investors were. And again, I'm a, I'm a VC or, or an LP and a VC. Um, and they had like the creme de la creme. It was like, you know, yeah. light speed on the traditional side, you know, Pantera on the non-traditional, you know, Mark Cuban, who, who funny enough has invested in a number of businesses that I've been involved with over the years. Um, but it was just, it was such a like who's who investors. Um, and I really liked the list, um, again, because I know so many of these folks already, like Redpoint, who's one of our investors, was, was one of my old investors at Tastebait. So like, I love those guys. <laughs> I think they're amazing. Um, so again, I was, I was really bullish on, on who the investors were. Then you start to get more into the product side. And you know, if you go to like L2B, I think back, in, back then when I was interviewing, we had something like 52% market share um, of L2s. And I'm sitting here going, no token, no grants, no incentive programs with you know other companies, no marketing, and over 50 percent market share. And the number two has launched a token, has you know done incentive programs, and and you know and is already marketing. And so I'm sitting here going like, this product is something very, doesn't add up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this product's very very good. And like, and I know a lot of people believe like great products sell themselves. I, I don't agree with that at all. No. I think great products. Um, help quite a bit, but I think you still have to find, you know, the right audience. You still have to find, um, the right use cases. You still have to find the right messaging. Um, but I'll tell you, like as a marketer, I, I would always rather have a great product because if you have a crappy product, you have to create these false narratives, which we'll talk about in a second, because you're like, I need to spin this thing. Right. Um, and, and I will say also too, as a marketer, I don't love that world because, um, I do like to look in the mirror at night and feel good about myself. I am a father yeah. and I just, I don't like the idea of, um, of trying to basically brainwash people is, is the way to put it. And, and in marketing, we call it, you know, perception building, perception shifting, but I would rather build an accurate positive perception or shift a false negative perception than try to build, you know, a fake positive perception or, or shift a fake, you know, negative perception. So, um, so that was a big thing for me. And then, I think also the, the developer piece, you know, we talked about it before, but the fact that I had talked to so many other companies in the industry and so many of them had nodded to the fact that the developers at, at Arbitrum were so great, um, it just kind of checked all the boxes for me. And so I think, again, the culture piece, just really nice, kind, inclusive people was kind of the final checkbox for me um, coming to Arbitrum. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I know like two points on that is I was in a, I was in a biotech, like quite high cap um, biotech sales job before I completely yep. left that and came into this industry. I, I completely understand from what you're saying about that because I felt like I was going into meetings, putting on a completely different face. I've been told the to pitch. I knew the products inside out, but at the end of the day, I was just like, yeah. can I really, can, can one person actually truly believe in this piece, like this biotech instrument and then try yeah. to like, you know, it just didn't, and this is why I kind of love this space so much because yeah. if you get the right people on board, the right product, you know what you're talking about and you know the, the information that you're getting across is, is coming from like the right place, so to speak. Yep. Yep. Um, and another thing, what you, you're saying about the Arbitrum guys, I've, I can completely uh, corroborate on that because we've worked with about probably three or four, maybe five, if you count in the Trident guys. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. every every single time that I've reached out yeah. to any anyone from Arbitrum, Often Labs to, for integrations to learn more about partnerships and, and things like that, the quickest, friendliest responses <laughs> out of I, I'm not just saying this because you're here, um, but the quickest and friendliest responses and the most thorough as well 
Um, it's it's been a complete joy to work with them every single time we have come across. So um, I, I can completely back that up. <laughs> yeah, I think part of it too, like it, it was so interesting because when I first started, you know, I want to say there were only maybe 30, 35 people. Um, and I was technically the first marketing hire. We had one community manager and everyone was so nice and so welcoming and so warm. And like, as someone that's worked in corporate America, his you know whole career ish, <laughs> um, it's so not the norm. I mean, normally it's like, who's yeah. this new person, you know, calm down, like, don't steal my thunder. I'm going to backstab you. And it was like <laughs> the complete opposite. I mean, like literally one of the things we do that's that I, I mean, I appreciate it is we have a meeting and I remember the, the, I think it was like my first or second day I get on, you know, full stand up the entire company. And uh, Steven, who's who's my manager, our CEO, was like, Andrew, introduce yourself. Um, and then literally one by one, every single person at the company got on the computer and like introduced themselves and welcomed me. And I was like, I know that'll be hard as we get bigger in scale, but like, <laughs> what a just incredible way to make a great first impression. You know what I mean? Um, and we even have another meeting every week um, on, uh, I think it's on Thursdays, where the entire meeting is literally just shouting out each other for good things that we've done. Um, and it could be like, you know, solving a problem for someone, stepping up and helping someone, but mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a special place. And I, I really do hope that it remains kind of as magical as it is. Um, I, I, I really genuinely love like all my coworkers, which I, this is, you know, Tastemate, I would say was very similar. And, you know, I had great coworkers at every company, but there's just something special about Arbitrum. And I would say what you see on the outside is, is pretty similar to kind of what you'd see on the inside. Yeah. Yeah, love that. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of stuff I want to go on to, but I'm sure. I know we might be pushed for time. But yeah, no worries. Um, what I really want to get into um, is how the hell does Arbitrum have such a ferocious <laughs> community? <laughs> Where is yeah. that came from? Um, as you say, with no kind of token, no grants, no kind of real yeah incentives to to actually be over there and be so vocal and so kind of active about like I, yeah I, I can't put my finger on it to be honest um <laughs> so i'm hoping you can kind of enlighten me a little bit there <laughs> yeah i mean the joke on. we always have is like there's no place like arbitrum because and it's so <laughs> true like you are right like i um uh, some of the tweets I've seen recently, I, and I love it. I love when like new people discover it and then like want to jump in, which I'll, I'll explain. Um, but I saw someone post something the other day and it was like, man, like crypto Twitter is so toxic. But meanwhile, over here, all these Arbitrum, you know, community <laughs> members are like partying and it's having it the time kind of, of their life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of feels like that every day. Like, um, like you see, I engage quite a bit with the community and, um, it, well, first off, I think it's really important to like, I think at the end of the day, like you have to, you have to engage with your community. I mean, they're, they're your customers, they're your builders, they're your partners, you know, like, how do you not respond to them? I, I don't, that I don't understand, you know, especially in, mm -hmm. in this industry. Um, and so, it, you know, what I would say is a couple of things. One, I think the tech is that good, right? I think, you know, first off, like our main net launched in, you know, and it was, it was, um, it was up and running before anything was up and running. Right. So I think that was obviously helpful, that whole kind of first mover advantage piece. Um, the second thing I would say is the, the community effectively evolved organically. Right. So there weren't any of these manipulation tactics happening. And I think like you could say, oh, well, manipulation tactics or how you, you know, grow quickly or scale, you know, maybe so, but I think what happened was, it really kind of grew through word of mouth, right? So mm -hmm. some people came in, you know, directly through Arbitrum because they're like, wow, this is fully EVM compatible. Like it's an intuitive experience that I'm familiar with. I've already been developing, you know, on Ethereum. So I think anyone that's like an, an ETH maxi 
um, instantly sees the opportunity, right? Cause it's like lower gas fees, faster, you know, faster speeds, um, very similar experience, if not a little easier. Right. So check, check, check. I think the other thing is like, there was no, what I would call like token manipulation tactics. So, you know, if you buy your Ethereum, you know, obviously you can go to Arbitrum and bridge it over, but you can also bridge it directly when you purchase it on some of the exchanges like the, you know, crypto.coms and Binance's the world. So I think that was probably also something that, made developers happy because it's like, it's, it's another step I don't have to take. It's another gas fee. I don't have to pay. Um, and then I think candidly what's happened is, is more and more folks that have built on Arbitrum have realized to your point, like the technology is great. The developers are responsive. The founders like actually listen to community feedback. Um, and so again, if you're going to pick a place to build for the long run, you know, you want to check the same boxes that I checked as, as someone looking to find a new home. And so I think it's everything from like, you know, trusted leaders, um, you know, looking at the quality of the product, looking at all the R&D and inventions that are happening. I mean, look at just Nitro alone since I started. I mean, yeah. we're looking at transaction speeds that are up like 10x. Um, and you could argue Nitro was like invented, you know, via, via our R&D department, right? Um, and so again, I think, you know, if, if you're smart and tech savvy, um, you see that this is really like the place to be. And, and I think also once you see the, you know, plus 50% market share, that kind of says, okay, this must just be a really great product. And because this is all word of mouth marketing. Effectively, it speaks for right? itself. Yeah. It speaks for itself. Yeah. Right. And then again, like I've never really heard of anyone going on and building and then saying, oh, I had the worst experience. Like I had to take <laughs> this token and convert it into another token. Like, oh, it was a whole new programming language. Oh, the interface looked totally different. Like, no. Um, because again, like that's our goal. Our goal is to scale Ethereum. Right. And I think if you look back at, um, you know, Ed, Stephen, and Harry's backgrounds, like it's so interesting to me because they they built Arbitrum pre-Ethereum, right? And so in my head, I said, well, why didn't you build, you know, um, an alternative layer one? Like, didn't you want all that, you know, TVL? Um, and no, for them, it was like, no, like we, we knew that whatever the base layer was going to be, there were going to be scalability issues, right? Because security, mm -hmm. decentralization, scalability, you can't have all three, right? Yeah. And so they're like, you know, we're going to build the scalability layer and wait for something where we believe in the security and decentralization enough because we're going to inherit that. Right. And so that's why, you know, everybody on crypto Twitter is like Arbitrum equals Ethereum because it does. I mean, we're literally just building the scalability layer on top of it. And then if you, even if you look at our recent kind of merger with um, Prismatic Labs, you know, who built the Prism client, um, same exact mindset. Like I was just with, um, with Preston and Raul recently, I mean, first off, I've never seen two companies have like a better cultural fit. Um, <laughs> like I genuinely like, love everybody at Prismatic Labs, but also like everybody's on the same path. I think everyone's really focused on this notion of like, how do we scale Ethereum? How do we bring Web3 to the masses? Um, I, I don't I don't see a lot of future Lambo owners on that team either. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, by the way, not to say if anyone out there wants a Lambo, don't get a Lambo, but like, I, I just think in general, we're all in it for similar reasons. And so, with that merger, um, you're now just seeing that much more talent focused on the same goal, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was really important. And then um, I think other than that, you know, this notion of community, like one of the jokes that I always make um, on crypto Twitter, but it's not really a joke because I always say like, I'm not a CMO of Arbitrum, I'm a CM CMO of the Arbitrum ecosystem, right? Um, and again, having worked in, you know, B2B marketing, B2C, B2D, all these different areas in the past, I really do understand the power of, of community um, and the power of, you know, all, all boats rise together 
or all tides rise together, I should say. Um, and so you'll see even on my you know Twitter um, as much kind of marketing and promotion of things like Dopex and GMS and Treasure Dow as you do you know Arbitrum. And then for new partners, um, probably even more because it's like we're trying to get them mm -hmm. off the ground. And, and the way I look at it is I'm like, if that company can be successful and attract you know users, what that's going to do is build TVL for us. You know, and then if someone's making transactions on that platform or in that game, you know, those are transactions that are going to benefit us. So at the end of the day, the success of all the companies that sit on top of Arbitrum directly correlates into our own success. And then again, you know, I was talking about this before as a marketer, a lot of times those things at layer three are a lot more fun and exciting and sexy. So like, it's kind of fun. I get to almost help market all of our community's mm -hmm. products um, while simultaneously marketing Arbitrum. And then we all win together, you know, and, and from what I've heard, um, from a lot of others, they didn't experience this at other places. Like I've heard from founders, like they couldn't get an email response or, you know, they couldn't get on the phone. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times a week I literally just jump on the phone with, with a founder and they're like, I just want to see if you have any ideas. And I'm just like, here you go. Here's four creative ideas <laughs> Run with them, no charge. Um, and then even like, I'll tell you, we believe so much in community, um, that like, I just hired a new community manager from our community. And, and I really mm -hmm. do believe in that. Like, I think this whole notion of we're just going to take the best of web two and bring them into web three is so wrong. I mean, I think there's great web two talent that deserves to be in web three that, that should be in web three, but at the same time, things like, you know, community management, technical writing, you know, solidity development. I mean, these are all going to be crypto native folks. Yeah. And I think folks that don't understand that, um, that are purely looking for where'd you go to college? Where'd you work before? Um, are going to miss the mark. Right. And so I think again, like our community is authentic, it's organic. It was built that way. And then I honestly think sometimes like the, the community members themselves are some of the best marketing. I mean, we have uh, one member I'll, I'll name, I'll name names. We have one member of the community that goes by the shred where all he does, <laughs> and he's like one of my favorite people in the entire community. Uh, he's based in Australia. And then what he does is he like, gets on camera, these like total pump you up hype videos and he like literally shreds his shirt and usually has it like written <laughs> on his chest. And you're like, this is so like, you're, you're saying like, okay, we're like a, a scaling solution for web three. <laughs> like we're not like, you know, the Manchester game, but I love it. And I'm like that, like that was something that candidly got me excited about our community. Yeah. And I'm sure the, the random person that sees it when I retweeted out to, you know, how many thousands of people sees it, but it's like, we have, we do have a lot of these community members. Like we have other community members that write incredible threads. Um, we have other community members that are like the best shit posters you've ever seen. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like one very big, fun, non-traditional family. Um, and I really do look at a lot of these folks as like members of our company. I know they don't work at Arbitrum, but like they're doing as much for the growth of Arbitrum and the growth of the, the ecosystem as, as maybe my team is. Right. And so I think it's really important to like acknowledge those folks, celebrate them, support them. Like I messaged him the other day, like how many t-shirts do I need to send you? <laughs> um, but I think like, yeah, I mean, we are different and, and you can see it. I mean, even sometimes I'll go into discord just to look at, you know, one of our posts versus a competitors and, you know, you'll see like a thousand different, you know, um, uh, like reactions to one of our posts and you'll see like seven on the other. And you're like, yeah, I thought your community was bigger than that, you yeah. know? So it's, um, you know, quality over quantity. I always say, and this is true as a marketer, like, you should always care more about engagement than you do vanity metrics like followers. And we have a pretty darn engaged community. And, and when I talk to a lot of like new builders, even that come in, they always say to me, 
that's definitely one of the factors. They're like, we we want quick adoption. And especially in a bear market when, you know, quote unquote, crypto Twitter's dead, they're like, there's so much activity on Arbitrum. It's like all I ever see. I um, did another podcast and um, I did this little marketing stunt and he literally did a screenshot because every single person had been like promoting Arbitrum. And he wrote, Andrew Saunders broke Twitter for me today. <laughs> <laughs> and um and yeah we like it that way you know and, and we try to be positive i mean again like i really do believe in our product and our team more than others i mean that's why i'm here but we try not to like bash anyone or anything like that and if we yeah. if we do do something it's it's all in good fun you know yeah mm -hmm. yeah i love it so i want to use your phrase of uh is it dive deeper questions is that dive is that, deep it, yeah yeah so um it was on leadership principles yeah <laughs> so um I know this because there's a fine line between what we do as a content platform and sure. some some of the more murkier aspects and some of the more murkier people that are out in in the like landscape. So, from from your perspective, um, particularly from a marketing and kind of content lens, is yeah. what what are the kind of current issues and what are some of yeah. like as I say like the the more shady tactics that can be used because we do get an awful lot of market participants that come into the space a little bit naive. And this yeah. is the reason why you have the likes of BitBoy and others that have have extremely large following, but you know 99% of those are kind of new new to the space but don't necessarily know where to go. But yeah. This this guy's got a million followers, so he must know what he's talking about, you know. Right. And there's that the same thing happens with projects. The same thing yeah. happens with projects, and the same thing happens with networks and different chains. So, yeah. like, what what from your perspective, what can people do to just be, you know, be a little bit aware of what's going on? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a little alpha on here for, <laughs> for your own marketing purposes. Um, I'm actually work. I can't talk about it, but I'm actually working on something that hopefully helps with this. Um, because I would say, as a marketer, you know, when I first entered this space, I'm not crypto native, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was a passionate retail investor, you know, NFT trader, um, but I don't come from come from this space. And so, like most folks entering this space, you know, I knew what was being told. And I think I think one of the biggest problems is. Um, you know, and it's, it's not just podcasts, it's, you know, it's podcasts, it's articles, it's Twitter, it's, you know, YouTube, I mean, you name it is just this lack of, um, this lack of fact checking. Right. And I don't think that the lack of fact checking comes from a place of, um, people not wanting to fact check. I don't think it comes from a place of like manipulation. Um, I think where it comes from is like, and you know, this, like this world is so complex, right? You know, I work inside Arbitrum. I have an hour a week with, you know, Ed Felton where he basically just teaches me. And then I've got an army of <laughs> developers that are just like so kind and so generous with their time. And I would say like, I'm still scratching the surface, you know what I mean? And I've, and I've learned a lot. Um, but I think again, like it's just so complex that, the average person just doesn't even know what questions to ask or what things to question or what to quote unquote dive deep on. And again, I don't know that, that that's anyone's fault. Right. And I think over time this will resolve itself. Right. Um, I think you'll get, you know, uh, reporters and hosts that just become more you know intelligent that, you know, have been through different experiences. And as a result may just start to ask different questions. And those questions may also result in, you know, more truthful answers. Um, but I think like the, the, the biggest issue right now, in my opinion, um, is really this notion of like fake narratives. Right. Um, and, and I'll give you a great example. So when I was doing my own research, you know, what I would, this is a nice little, trick actually for anyone that's new to web three what i would do is i would open coin gecko um i'll show you 
I'd open CoinGecko and then I would go into categories, um, which they do a really nice job and you can, you know, categorize it by, um, by alphabetical. I'll use the Arbitrum one as an example, but basically you, you know, you open it up into categories and then you can go into the different categories, right? So I can click on, you know, analytics. I can click on, um, centralized exchanges. I can click on, you know, uh, decentralized exchanges, DeFi derivatives, uh, staking, um, fan tokens, gambling, gaming. And so what I would do is I would go into those categories and I would look at who had the most market share. And then I would go listen to a podcast episode about that company. Right. Cause I would say, okay, if I listen to one in each category, I'll understand the category, but I'll also understand it from like the market leader, which will hopefully also give me some sense of like, why they're the market leader, right. Where they, first mover advantage, better technology, you know, who, who knows? Um, so that's kind of how I started my, my DYOR journey. Um, and you know, I'll be honest with you. Like I believed most of what I heard, right. Because I'm, I'm hearing things that are very technical. Um, I'm hearing things that are just basically broad questions. Um, and what I've come to realize now that I've been in this industry for a long time is, um, there's a lot of fiction out there. And um, I, I, I like to refer to this as like twisted truths. Like I don't, I don't wanna go as far as to say people are out there blatantly lying. I just think that there's a lot of folks out there where they take something um, and the way that they present it isn't, I guess I would say 100% accurate or ethical, right? So for example, there's you know certain things that I've seen in this space and then luckily, you know, again, I have, I have Ed, I go to Ed and I say, I'm, I'm so confused because based on this conversation that I had with one of our developers last week, I didn't think th that this was possible. And then, you know, what's told to me is, well, it's not like it could be in the future. Um, and then I dig in and I go, well, then how is someone talking about this? And then you do a little bit of research, you know, whether it's DYOR or whether it's, you know, talking to other folks in the industry and you find out, oh, this is in, in pre-alpha phase. <laughs> Or you're like, this is in white paper development phase. And I think like even with white papers, one of the things that I've learned that's so strange to me and so different from like the world that I come from as an investor in, 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 in startups is um, what I'm used to is, is a founder coming in and saying, and I know it's a little different because I'm talking consumer products, you know, here's my business idea. Here's the product, you know, here's the roadmap, you know, here's when we're going to be in market, you know, here's, here's the, here's the growth plan for three years, but you look at it and go, all right, I'm investing in, you know, uh, an athleisure business, I'm an, an athleisure investor, or I'm investing in a celebrity pet food brand. Like I know exactly what I'm getting. And I know in tech, obviously it's a little bit different, but I think in web two, again, you know, most of what's pitched to me, even though I don't invest in a lot of this stuff is like an app, you know, or a SaaS platform or, you know, some sort of data tool. And these are all things that I know for a fact can be built, right? Cause other versions of them have been built before. What's different in web three is you read these white papers and you go, wow, that's incredible. Or wow, that's, that's going to change the game. But what you don't realize is that the goal may be too ambitious is, is maybe the way to put it. Right. And so what will happen is large VC investors will throw money into these companies. Cause they're like, I don't want to miss out on this opportunity. Um, and also the way I typically invest is I only need one of a hundred to hit, you know, that's yeah. how most big traditional pieces <laughs> operate. And so it's a little bit of like, even if I don't understand this white paper, or I don't understand whether or not this is theoretically possible, I don't care enough to not take the risk. Right. And so I think where I get a little caught up is, you know, especially from a, a retail investor standpoint is like when I read a white paper and then I start to talk to my developers and then they start to say to me, like, yeah, that might be possible in 10 years, or that might be possible in five years, or I don't think that's ever possible. That's concerning for me, right? Because 
you know, someone that's going to go down the rabbit hole and read that white paper, um, it's almost like, well, do you have to put a disclaimer at the bottom of a page that says does not exist yet or may not theoretically <laughs> be possible? Because there are, you know how it is. It's like when influencers yeah. market, it's like sponsor post, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I just argue that like there's a lot of things that are theoretical that are not tangible. And the word I always hear is, is vaporware, right? There's a lot of vaporware out there. Um, and I think, again, like, you just continue to look at teams. You look at like, are they being truthful about their product? Are they being truthful about their narrative? Um, are they actually hitting, you know, benchmarks against their roadmap? But, you know, once I was in this industry, it, it, it didn't take me very long to start to see like what was legitimate and what wasn't and who was honest and who wasn't. And, you know, again, I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, mm -hmm. but I just would say like, do your own research three times, you know? And also if you read a white paper, like, maybe do a little research on, is this theoretically possible? Or, or if it's not like, when could it be possible? Because you might be investing in something that has like a 20 year roadmap. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think again, that's like a little bit of just this notion of like transparency and trust. Um, and I think again, like I'll, I'll give you another example of, of like twisted truths. Like I see sometimes BD deals go out, um, and then again, you know, I've got a very large network of relationships in, in all these industries. I'll, I'll make a phone call and, and do a little due diligence and I'll find out, oh, that was paid for, you know, by mm -hmm. a Web3 company. Um, but then the way it hits the press and the way that it's talked about was like, you know, very similar to actually what happened for us in Reddit. So Reddit had this, um, this thing called the, the community bake off, um, where they were trying to decide on what chain they wanted to use to bring Reddit community points. And so it was, you know, it was a competition and they ended up choosing Arbitrum, you know, because they decided it was the right technology for them to build on, right. Or for, for this to live on. And so I, you know, again, you know, when we did a press release, I think, you know, both sides acknowledge like, yes, like Arbitrum was chosen. Right. Um, and that is what I would call like a very non-twisted, you know, accurate, you know, press piece. Right. And, you know, obviously we don't have a token, so there's no pumping going on that day, but you know, had we had one, maybe we would have seen some sort of activity happen. Right. Who knows? Um, but what happens for me is when I see companies in, in web three, you know, go in and, and I've now heard of this happening with, with numerous companies. It's not just like one bad actor, but it's like they're running around doing BD deals um, with either, you know, large scale tech companies, entertainment companies, web two companies. Um, and, and they're paid for, they're paid BD deals where significant money is shifting hands in one direction. Um, and then it's the narrative is, you know, we're the choice of this company or, or, or <laughs> we're winning, we're with this company. And it's like, you're, you're with that company because you paid to be with that company. And so <laughs> one of the things I know, it's like, I, I really don't like it. It's, it's, it's super unethical in my opinion. And by the way, it's not unethical to do those deals. It's just unethical to message it that way. Just be transparent. Mm. Just say we're, you know, we've invested, you know, a significant amount of money into this company. You know, we're going to be building this new product together. Um, but I don't, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with telling people that you're, you're investing in, you know, these traditional companies to help bring them to web three, but the whole narrative of like, we were selected, we were picked when you, when you paid for it. Um, <laughs> it it's, it's a big turnoff for me. Um, we won't be doing those types of, of yeah. you know, um, <laughs> one. and then, um, and actually one thing to know that's, that's helpful for, for like non-marketers is this notion of what I would call like one-sided announcements. So I, I can talk about this cause I worked at, you know, NBC universal and, um, and Amazon, which are two large scale businesses. But at the end of the day, like when, when I was working with Amazon and we would do like a large scale AWS deal with a client, right. Um, 
you know, obviously that client was, you know, paying us significant funds, but then there was, you know, typically a value exchange, you know, it might be, we were agreeing to advertise with that company, or mm -hmm. um, maybe we were agreeing to, you know, use that company's services for, you know, for our needs. Um, but it was a very like symbiotic relationship, obviously one side, you know, benefited more than the other, but th there was a value transfer on both sides. Right. Um, I think um, that the, challenge that I would always have is, you know, when we did those deals, the other company, the external company would come in and say, we want to do a press release, right? Um, acknowledging this partnership. And we would say yes, right? So we would talk to our corp comm team and we would say, you know, we want to announce this new partnership. And they would usually say, okay, here are the things we're comfortable saying. Here are the things we're not comfortable saying. But a lot of times we'd have press releases coming from, you know, our company and there'd be press releases coming from their company, right? Um, what I see in Web3 and crypto quite a bit, which is, which is concerning, is I see press releases only coming from one side. And when I see that, it usually means one of two things. Because again, I've been there. I've done this. It, e it either means one, they think it's too risky to do a press release. So for example, like, let's say I'm at, you know, this, this water bottle company, terrible example, I just realized. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to go partner with this crypto company. If, if, if in any way, I worry that that partnership could impact my brand negatively. Either someone thinks less of my company or um, it could put a consumer at risk, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to release a press announcement because I don't want to amplify it, right? I know mm. I'm doing a somewhat risky deal, but maybe I'm doing it for the right reasons. But that being said, it's still risky. And so I want to kind of downplay it. I don't want to like go out there and shout about it. So when I see Web3 companies shouting about a deal and I see nothing coming from the other side, like that's concerning to me, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go ahead and say it means something was paid for, but like it, it, that could be a reason behind it, right? And then the second one for me is, and you know this, but like when you pay for a deal, um, legally the other company can't like pretend like they didn't, right? So it's very similar to like when you pay for an influencer, right? So let's say, you know, I'm at a web two company and a web three company paid me $5 million to do this BD deal. I can't put out a press release that says like, I evaluated all the best technology and this was the winner because that's a lie, right? Yeah. And hypothetically, like I could get sued for that as a large company if and when someone were to find out about that. And so again, when I think when, you know, when I see large companies not talking about, you know, these big news and big announcements, but I see the other side in Web3, like talking about it every single day, what that says to me is either one, the Web2 company thinks it's too risky to acknowledge it, which is also not a good thing. Or two, and this is probably the more likely scenario, there was a, a transfer of funds in one direction and they yeah. don't, and they can't say it because hypothetically that fake narrative could get them in legal trouble, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly when this industry is on the surface. And again, for a lot of people, it's, yeah. it's just a game of kind of attention economy. Whereas it, it yeah. There's, there's much more to that like every it's the whole attention economy game comes in and you know it you know it's coming in because friends and family start messaging when doge is like <laughs> doing its thing and and ripping um and then yeah. everyone feeds into the attention economy thing but the infrastructure and all everything that's being built that's never the stuff that gets shouted about from the rooftops no. it's always you know the it's like look at this deal you know look yeah. at this new technology and it's like and then i sit here going that technology is not real and that deal was paid for moving on <laughs> but it's yeah it's it's a problem because and i get it it's like i think you know again if you're if your technology is subpar 
or if you've already had a liquidity event, um, you're playing you're playing that game. You're playing the spec pump game. I mean, not super dissimilar in the traditional stock market, but I think again, like it's just so important to be transparent and to be honest. Um, because by the way, there are people that may want to buy that you know that that token. Um, on the back of that news, even if the news is truthful. And by the way, maybe there's less people because there's less excitement around it, but it's not to say that a truthful announcement isn't going to drive consumer excitement. It could, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but I think like unethical excitement is going to drive unethical pump. You know, that's my personal opinion. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we've personally been <laughs> a helping hand in getting some of our kind of um advisory and portfolio companies over to Arbitrum, particularly the Trident oh, boys who I never have a dull in uh, never have a dull meeting with oh yeah um, they're entertaining mon <laughs> monolith from Trident <laughs> but um is is gaming a, ma a major focus or is there any kind of other aspects that you'd you'd love to see more of um in the ecosystem or build what what people can actually bring to the Arbitrum ecosystem. Yeah no great question. Um and, and I'll go back to kind of like the what brought me to Arbitrum a little bit. So you know, for me, um, you know, as as a as a trader myself, um, you know, obviously when you're building a DeFi DAP, like there's so much more inherent risk, right? Because you're talking mm -hmm. about much larger sums of money, you're talking about you know significantly larger transfers of, of value. So at the end of the day, I think if you're going to build a DeFi company, you're looking for arguably the safest and most stable home, right? And so when I first joined Arbitrum, I think the the quote unquote narrative was like Arbitrum is the home of DeFi in you know in layer three or excuse me in layer two. Um, let me just restate that. Um, I think the narrative was you know Arbitrum is the home of DeFi in layer two, right? Because it's like everybody was on Arbitrum one. Um, I think at the end of the day, you know, that has continued to be the case. You know, every time I meet with a new DeFi company, um, obviously they're you know, typically saying to me, you know, Arbitrum One is, is where we're going to build. Um, and then I think, you know, with NFTs, you know, you started to see, uh, especially for let's call it like higher value collections or or even like a treasure DAO, someone that's really building for like the long, long term. Like, you know, as a as a marketer that's worked with like every gaming company you can think of, like I look at those guys and I'm like, there's there's a lot of interesting things under the hood there. Um, even just mm -hmm. the fact that they chose to build on one is like a good signal for me. Um, so obviously you saw a bit of an uptick beyond DeFi on Arbitrum One, but I think what's so exciting is is Arbitrum Nova, right? So where Arbitrum One is an optimistic roll-up technology, um, Arbitrum Nova is an antitrust technology. And what it does is it basically lends itself um, even better to things that require even faster speeds um, and even more, you know, transaction volume, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, they're both, you know, extremely secure and stable, but like when you're talking about significant high value exchange, you know, numbers, you want to be, you know, triple, triple buttoned up, right? And so yeah. what's happened with Nova is I think, you know, the, the, the kind of conversations that I've been having has been, you know, we always wanted to build on Arbitrum, but one wasn't the right home for us based on what we were building, which is usually gaming and social. And now that we have Nova, I think what we always say to folks is, you know, now we have a home for gaming and social, right? So what I've started to see quite a bit is, you know, one, the social aspects. So obviously Reddit built their community point system. You know, you're talking about 500 million, you know, potential users and, and traders, which is incredible. Um, you know, as, as I'm sure you're aware and I'm aware, we're starting to see more Web3 social platforms emerge. It's still mm -hmm. early days. Um, but I, I would love to see, um, 
some of those social platforms come to Arbitrum because I think one, um, it'll be a great developer experience. And two, it'll just be a great user experience because the, you know, the apps will move quickly, you know, transaction fees will be very, very low. Um, so I think there's a lot of room for social. And then on the gaming side, what's been really interesting to me is like, we've definitely had some partners that we already work with that are, um, like building games, you know, on the back of other IP that they already have. Um, and even if that IP is on one, a lot of times they're choosing to build the game on Nova, which I think is super exciting. Um, the other thing that I'm seeing is a lot of gaming companies that have built on other chains in the past. Um, and there's one of two kind of mindsets that I'm seeing. It's either, I believe in a multi-chain future, which I think a lot of us do. I believe in a multi-chain future. Um, and uh, I want to build on Arbitrum 2 and let you know the users decide where they're going to play my game uh which i think is a smart move mm -hmm. right you see a lot of things built on ethereum and arbitrum um which i think by the way makes total sense because it's like you know if you're an ethereum maxi and you want to stay on there and you want to pay higher you know gas fees and you want slower transactions like that's your choice but i always say like we really do inherit <laughs> the security and decentralization <laughs> of ethereum so like all you're doing is just saving you know time and money um <laughs> so i think like i think that's the beginning of it but um but a lot of the games that I'm seeing being built are, are really kind of, at least from what I've seen, I mean, most Web3 games that I played today, it's really just like staking your NFT. Um, some of the games that I'm now seeing, I wouldn't go as far as to say we're getting towards the like console, you know, game space, but like they're really interesting. Like I'm seeing things that mimic, I'm a big board game uh, uh, player and fan. I'm seeing things that mimic like board game engines, um, mm -hmm. a little bit more, which is really cool. Cause you can imagine, you know, what if I'm playing like dominion, the card game, or, you know, what if I'm playing like, um, uh, trying to think of a game, everybody would know, like terraforming Mars. Like those are all things that I, I honestly think at this point could live in, in web three and, and actually be like fun, interesting experiences. Cause that's the problem today is the games haven't been fun. Um, and then like another example is, um, we're working with a company called AI arena, um, where, and this is interesting for me cause I used to work with, with Alexa for years in the AI space, they're merging like AI and gaming, which I think is super interesting and didn't expect mm. to see. And so again, when you talked about kind of like, what are you seeing that's out there? I would say like most of the, um, really inventive stuff that I'm seeing is, is in the gaming space. Um, just new tokenomics, um, new models, new gameplay, um, things that actually look fun to play. Like I, I'm sure you've seen those little tiny, um, Nintendo and super Nintendo, yeah. <laughs> but like, those are still fun. Like I'll plug those into my TV and go play super Mario brothers. Like, yeah, sure, yeah, it's sure. not, you know, it's not a, like a modern game, but like, it's still fun. And I would argue like, that's, that's what we're going to start to see is more of that type of thing. And, um, and also anyone that's ever been in, in the traditional gaming space knows like to develop a really great high graphic game, like that takes years, you know, like, like I come from more traditional Hollywood to make a motion picture can take six years, right. To make a great yeah. game can take six years. Um, I used to work with, um, with some of our gaming clients at CA, like Will Wright, who created the Sims. And so I remember how much time and energy and work goes into making this stuff. And so I think we're just early. Right. And, um, it's probably a reason that I still buy a lot of NFTs. Um, and, and I guess, you know, uh, not investment advice. Um, I, <laughs> I, I buy a lot of NFTs that are tied to like gaming economies. So I do buy a lot of treasure stuff my, myself because I, I just sit here and I go like, okay, like art is art and there'll always be a home for art. And I buy NFTs that I love the artwork in. But when we think about gaming, like if we just imagine that the web three games that we're seeing today are, are V1 and that the end game is let's call it V7, like how does my asset from V1 yeah. move to V7? I mean, it's easy for me to see, like I was looking at, um, 
uh, was it like Forgotten Runes um, the other day? And the wizards, you know, if you look at the roadmap, it's like they're first they're doing 3D characters of them. And, you know, I can imagine that long term down the road, you know, you're playing, you know, a, a Forgotten Runes, you know, wizards game. And like, you've got an incredibly dope looking wizard that you own. <laughs> But the but the V one of that wizard was this tiny little pixelated guy that could spin around in circles, you know. So it's you got to think long, long term, and and that's also part of why I went to Arbitrum is like I'm a long term thinker, and so you know even if there are folks that have, you know, higher TVL, even though we surpassed Avalanche this week, so we're now number five. Um, <laughs> I think it's a long game, and I and I believe in Arbitrum from a long term perspective, and like again, I'm not going to do unethical things for short term wins and short term growth. Like. I'm going to do what's right for the company. I'm going to do what's right for the product. I'm going to do what's right for the users. I'm going to do what's right for the community. And if that means it's going to take us a little bit longer, so be it. Um, mm -hmm. That's our goal. Our goal is to still be here. Our goal is to still be strong. Um, and I'll tell you, like when, when crypto winter hit, like our community's still here and they're still super active. And I can't say that about all the others. And again, it's because we've been here for the right reasons since day one and, and we'll remain here for the right reasons. And most of our community is builders, right? And builders are long-term thinkers. You know, they're not like, let me just build this product and quickly flip it and make, you know, $5 million, you know, the way some of the, the NFT stuff works. I mean, these guys are building products and, and they're, they're truly trying to change entire industries, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Despite it being that crypto winter and as you say, with those builders, it's probably, it's probably the most active place to be at the minute, but at the same time, I guarantee they know in the back of their heads, it still hasn't had its it still hasn't had its day, which no, is kind of crazy. It's, it's kind of crazy to say. <laughs> and we'll probably, we probably look back on this in like a year, maybe two years, three years time and just think, Jesus, yeah. yeah. When I mean, I'll, I'll put this we like, you know, I've invested in a lot of startups and um, a lot of my friends will call me when they want to go to a startup and they'll say, you know, I'm done with big business, but I'm going to take a pay cut. So I need to know that this equity is going to, you know, be worth something. <laughs> and I'll put it this way. Every single startup that I put a friend in has exited right in one way or another. Like, um, so you better believe that when I'm picking the startup that I'm going to work at, <laughs> like I'm, I'm doing a lot of due diligence and, um, there is nothing prior to starting here that didn't tell me that this place is, is, is special. And then now that I've been here, it's even more special than I thought it was. And I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave that at that. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Well, Andrew, I could sit and talk all day. Uh, yeah, likewise. Pick, this is fun. I'd, I'd love to pick your brain some more as well, but uh, maybe we can run it back in a couple of months' time or something yeah. when there's more developments happen. And um, once, it, once again, th yeah. thanks uh, thanks very much for joining us. And um, if it, any kind of really easy places to find you guys, obviously your Twitter yeah. is blowing up at the minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the easiest is, is, you know, arbitrum.io, um, where you can like join the community. So we've got, you know, links to all of our social, um, profiles there, um, developer docs. Like I would definitely jump in and read some of those docs. Um, and then if you're a builder, I mean, we, we always say this jokingly, but it's true. I mean, you can really start building your first app in under five minutes. So if you've never experienced it, like go experience it for yourself. And, and I honestly think in five minutes, you'll see why so many people just organically choose to build on arbitrum. And then, um, we are definitely hiring and growing. I think like, obviously everyone right now is, um, is shrinking or consolidating or being conservative. Um, we are growing, like we, we are mm -hmm. growing across the board around the world. So, um, we post all of our jobs on lever, uh, and they're also on the arbitrum.io website. So definitely keep an eye on those. Um, and like I said, we, we love 
uh, crypto native folks. So I would say we definitely have folks coming from you know Web two, but we also have folks coming from Web three. Um, so definitely check that out. And then in terms of of social, um, you know, I think it's important like. We only have a few handles that are, you know, verified Arbitrum handles. Um, our main handle is at Arbitrum. We also have a handle Arbitrum uh, Devs, which is more uh, developer focused. Um, we also have a handle Arbitrum underscore CN, which is in uh, Mandarin. So for anyone in APAC that um, wants to engage in Mandarin, that's there. Um, our Discord is obviously uh, super, super popular. A lot of uh, interesting uh, community members having fun in there as well. <laughs> Um, and then we actually just launched uh, another new handle, which is exciting called Arbitrum core. Um, and the idea here is like, uh, you know, play on space and planets core of the planet. Like our ecosystem is core to our company. And so this is a place where if you really want to dive into like ecosystem partners, I mean, we can't, we have over 500 dApps now. So it's obviously mm -hmm. we can't, you know, retweet five things per company a day, but this is the place where you're going to see more of that. Right. So I would think the Arbitrum handle is all things Arbitrum and a couple big things here and there from, from ecosystem partners. The core handle is, is like, I want to live, breathe, eat, sleep, the ecosystem. That's the place to be. So I'll be there quite a bit, as you could imagine. Um, we have another fun handle that's about to come out, which I won't say anything about, <laughs> um, but it's very, uh, it's very fun and very DGen, and I'm sure the community members will end up loving it. Um, and, um, and we are also, we're on Telegram. Um, and uh, yeah, those are, those are basically the best places to find us. And then for me, as you can see, because I'm a marketer, it's been on screen the entire episode. Uh, my handle is uh, at Andrew Saunders. Um, and you will recognize my, uh, my green dead fellows with a red bow tie, um, which is, which by the way is an Ethereum NFT. And the reason that's okay is because Arbitrum equals Ethereum. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Andrew, thanks so much. Um, make sure yeah. all those handles are checked and verified and in the description as well. Yeah. And, um, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. Please, I'm the worst person at doing this, but please do all the like, <laughs> like and subscribe stuff. It does Smash help. Smash that subscribe button, friends. <laughs> we will flip bankless one day. You just <laughs> Should I, I give you my layer, my layer two out. Layer two out. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thanks, everyone. All right. Cheers. It was so nice to meet you. Take care.